passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to Post Wrestling, and it's our pleasure to welcome this individual to our show, uh, coming off our review last week of The Dissident. He is an Academy Award-winning director whose latest film, The Dissident, covers the murder of Jamal Hashogi and goes very, very deep into the case. A pleasure to welcome Brian Fogel to the program. Brian, how are you doing today? Um, I'm doing well. I'm in, uh, I'm in Los Angeles uh... Had a nice weekend, and uh, we've got June gloom here going, which is an interesting thing that uh, everybody thinks L.A. is uh, sunny, but for the month of June, it's just always just gloom. <laughs> we have the opposite. Up here in Canada, everyone assumes that we're in igloos and it's cold all the time, when it's, it's actually, uh, I'm sure, m- more similarities than differences between Toronto and Los Angeles. Yeah, well, um, hopefully it'll pass soon, but it's... Uh, Anyway, doing well. Well, I wanted to start off this by uh, tying in one of the very first quotes uh, that we hear from your previous film of Icarus. And that's when you hear Lance Armstrong saying, extraordinary allegations must be followed up by extraordinary proof. And the Jamal Hashogi case, this film, The Dissident, very much is that extraordinary proof. But what is so fascinating is when you inject politics at the very highest level and that power that comes with it that kind of throws a major curveball into that pretty simple uh ex- extraordinary allegations being met with extraordinary proof doesn't always give you the fair justice that it should accompany well i i i think you know what was what's interesting about um you know the the two films you know both uh Icarus and and the dissident is um, exactly that, where there's this incredible, overwhelming, uh, substantiated, undeniable, irrefutable truth uh, behind Russia's state-sponsored doping uh, scandal and program, which took place over decades. Um, Or in the case of the dissident, the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi uh, that was ordered by, you know, the crown prince himself. Um, And yet, despite this truth, um, both of these uh, crimes uh, are uh, are able to be gotten away with, uh, essentially without punishment uh, or any sort of uh, ramifications. So in starting, you know, the project here, um, you had just won the Academy Award for Icarus. And I, I guess I'm curious to know, would you have felt confident enough to tackle something as big as this topic um if you had not had the success of Icarus you know I I I think it I think it goes more to um the question of could have I tackled um this topic um uh 
had Icarus not happened and um, and arguably the success of Icarus. And I, and I think that that answer is, is no, um, you know, it was uh, October, 2018 uh, when uh, the world became aware of Jamal Khashoggi's murder over those two weeks. Um, and, you know, every media outlet, every news outlet, uh, arguably in the world was covering the story. Um, and, um, you know, journalists from all over the world were, were converging on Istanbul. Um, and the ability for me to be able to embark on this journey um, as I saw it was to gain uh, access and, and exclusive access to uh, Jamal's fiance, Hatisha Jengas, Omar Abdulaziz in Canada, who I viewed as the protagonist of the story, um, and the Turkish government, uh, and to build their trust. And um, as so many others were, I think, probably in pursuit of this story um, as well, um, I think the work that we had done uh, on Icarus and protecting Gregory Rachenkov, how the film came together, and ultimately, um, you know, the the accolades um, allowed me access um, that I don't think, um, you know, even even a year prior, um, I could have I could have ever um, achieved or received. Um, you know, uh, un, under the circumstances. Where is Brian Fogel in, in your life and your career in October of 2018? And this story uh, may be changing what, whatever your future projects were lining up to be at the time. Uh, take us back to kind of where, where you are when this whole thing is unfolding. It's a very uh, interesting question and one that um, I haven't been asked before. Um, you know, I, 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 I'd come off of, winning the Oscar in March of 2018. And, and that was, you know, such a, a, a surreal experience. Um, you know, it was uh, largely uh, all positive. Um, but coming into that, there was a, a tremendous amount of pressure because the campaign for that had been going for months, months, months. And, you know, I'd been uh, traveling nonstop and, and and the stakes behind it, which was, you know, at the time Russia had not been banned, there were real world stakes. And and Rachenkov, uh, Gregory Rachenkov, a scientist, is is in this to this day still living in hiding and under protection. And uh, you know, so that that has not changed. And so you know, coming out of that um, that kind of world one that was in Icarus, um, March of twenty eighteen. I had, I had had no bandwidth to really consider other projects. And then, you know, you, you, you know, that, that journey is essentially over and now my bandwidth is open to consider other projects. And all these things are coming at me from, you know, scripted features to taking a meeting at Disney to, you know, to, to you name it and nothing that was coming at me, um, was resonating or checking the boxes that I was looking for, at least in my mind, for <clears throat> what that next project was going to be, what that next film was going to be. And, and, and I felt um, pressure. I mean, I felt a, kind of like a burden and an obligation that, okay, whatever the next thing I do is, has got to somehow, you know, 
be in that kind of realm of investigative journalism. It needs to be a thriller. It needs to have real world implications. There are, uh, I don't want to tell a, an archival story. I want to go on a journey. I want to, you know, uncover and unravel things. And, you know, I hadn't found anything. And here this, you know, Jamal's murder, you know, tragically uh, is unfolding on the pages of, of, of the newspapers and uh, CNN and BBC and what have you uh, on a daily basis. And my ears perk up and I go, okay, um, this could be it. This might be it. Um, because it, it was checking those boxes um, that I was interested in. Um, the story of human rights, a story of free speech, freedom of press, a journalist who had been murdered in his own country's consulate, a, you know, a grieving widow, uh, a dissident protagonist, you know, uh, living in fear of his life in Montreal for tweeting, you know, all these elements that come forward in the film. And, um, and I said, okay, this, this, this could be the next one. And, you know, when you set out on a journey like this, I, I go into a mindset of, I have no idea <clears throat> how long this is going to take. I don't know if this is going to be, you know, uh, take me a year. Is this going to take me two years? Um, Icarus had, Icarus had taken me, um, uh, three, three and a half years. Um, so, you know, when you're taking on a, a, a project, like I'm really mindful of not knowing where that, where that's gonna, uh, how long it's going to take and where that's going to go. Um, but, you know, at, at that time, um, you know, I was really trying to figure out what it was and, and, um, and I didn't know whether or not I was going to be able to truly make the film until about four months later, I, I set out uh, middle of October to try to gain access. Um, but it wasn't until um, Hatija Jengas finally agreed to be in the, be a part of this, which is the first scene that you see of her in the film, uh, which was when she went to speak in front of the European Parliament in the beginning of February 2019, that I knew that I, that I could actually make the film. And so that journey was October, November, December, January, you know, three and a half months of basically just, you know, nose to the grindstone. I was in Istanbul, I was in Montreal, building trust with Atija, building trust with Omar, building trust with the Turks that I felt like, okay, um, I can now actually begin making the film. That process in and of itself of building trust before you even, you know, bring cameras into into the whole thing uh, seems like such a important part of the documentation process that, you know, never really kind of gets uh, seen by the audience. Um, can you maybe describe a little bit more about how you managed to just let these people feel comfortable to be a part of this? Well, I, I think um, for, for, for me and, and, also, you know, my creative team, um, the way that, that I'm approaching um, uh, working with someone is I think there's different styles and you, you can't say one's right, one's wrong. Um, there are filmmakers um, who go, okay, I'm, I'm just going to be a fly on the wall and my camera's going to be there and whatever happens is going to happen. And Yes, I do that to a larger extent in, in a lot of in a lot of ways. But 
when approaching a story like this, you're not only dealing with real lives, so it's not like you're going in retrospect and making a movie, I don't know, about, you know, what happened during the Obama years, or you're making a movie, um, you know, uh, about Prince or, you know, or somebody who's, who's no longer here. Uh, while Jamal uh, was, uh, was gone, you know, there's real, you know, world implications and tentacles and the people deeply affected by his murder were alive. And that's who I was seeking to work with. And so, you know, I approached Atija and, and Omar and the Turks going, look, I'm, I'm not here to shoot for a day uh, or shoot for a week or to do an interview with you and leave. If we go and do this, um, I'm here to go on a journey with you and I'm going to be by your side all through this process. And when the film comes together, I'm going to show you this film before we're, before I complete it and make sure that you're okay with it because it's really important to me that you're proud of this film and that you're proud of the work we've done and that, and that you trust me um, and that I haven't done anything to, to, you know, to, to upset you. And um, because I wasn't out there going to like, let's say make the jinx, you know, where, where you're trying, you know, where, where what happened and catching, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Robert Durst and, a, you know, like, and, and it turns out that he's a murderer. That's not what this story was. It was, you know, this, uh, I, I knew that Omar and Atija going in, I had great compassion for them. And so it was, it was just taking time. And that trust building was months and months and uh, over a year long process. I mean, the Turks finally gave me the transcript to his murder, which they still haven't released to CNN or BBC or any organization, but it's in the film. And that took a year. And, and there were probably 60, 70 meetings I had. I wasn't filming. I was just meeting officials within the Turkish government, building their trust that they knew that I could be trusted. Um, you know, for, for every day that I would shoot, uh, with Hatija, we would have, uh, we would hang out for days. We'd go to lunches, we'd go to dinners. We'd like, you know, we, uh, like we were on like a very emotional journey together and same with Omar. And I think that, that, that trust that was built, that they understood that I was not just there to film with them. I was going to protect them. Um, I think allowed, um, for what you see in the film. And that was the same case with Icarus. It's it's such a concrete case that you present in the documentary, and I'm just I'm struck watching it at the certain level of brazenness of the government to believe that we can carry this out. There will be so much evidence, and when you're weighing the political calculus of this, when MBS is just a few months removed from this this tour of essentially being the new face of Saudi Arabia. It just seemed like this is as much a story of this belief that we are above the law and, you know, the fallout, I mean, gives a lot of credence to that ability of how far they feel they could get away with something that is done in a pretty transparent fashion that you outlined throughout the documentary. Yeah. Look, I, I don't think, um, you know, that the Saudis ever believe for a minute that they were going to get caught, you know? So 
unlike, let's say, um, you know, the 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 poisoning of Alexei Navalny mm-hmm. uh, with Novichok and, uh, you know, in in in, in Germany uh, or the murder of Alexander Litvinenko with polonium in 2006, um, where Putin is leaving his fingerprints on things where he's going, yeah, 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 I didn't do it. But you go, well, uh, how else could have this happened? There's no other way who's getting access to Russian nerve agents unless this was a state ordered hit where Putin is 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 wanting, you know, uh, essentially his people or those who betray him to know that, you know, this this is this is what's going to happen. And he doesn't care. Um, I think with MBS. Um, ultimately, he was able to get away with it because of the money, because of the power that that Saudi holds and, and on the world stage and investments and, you know, all the stuff that we faced and the struggle even to get distribution for the film. Mm-hmm. But but in the planning of the murder, which was botched, obviously, uh, they never could have imagined that there was a listening device inside the consulate. I don't think they could have foreseen the piecing together of uh, the extraordinary job Turkish intelligence did with all the closed uh, caption, you know, all the, all the video surveillance cameras all over the city that they were able to, to piece that together from the airports to the, you know, I mean, their investigation was, was incredible. Um, And, you know, clearly they, they intended to make Jamal vanish. um, And they certainly were not believing, uh, that they were going to be caught. Uh, certainly, you know, one of the big parts of the story is just like the incredible amount of evidence that you were able to gather and present in this entire thing. And obviously, well, to me, the most chilling of which was when, you know, in the film, you finally did present that transcript that you were just describing. Um, and I found it incredibly chilling. The fact that we were simply hearing this person read out the transcript <laughs> as we got to see the text on screen rather than, you know, let's say maybe hearing the audio itself or, you know, seeing photos using, uh, using photos to illustrate, I, I suppose the, or a reenactment of some sort to illustrate the transcript. Um, obviously you're limited with what evidence you're given, but like, what was the creative decision process behind just simply showing the words for, well, you know, arguably the most chilling scene of the movie? Well, that scene, um, uh, was actually a, a, a pretty, uh, very, very in-depth, you know, graphic sound, um, uh, you know, also the, how we were bringing the words to life and how we chose to construct that scene between Irfan Vidas, the chief prosecutor, Agnes Calamard, and then using the actual transcript, but turning the transcript almost into a living, breathing character, and then using the sound design that was going on behind that, the lighting effects that we were doing through that sequence of, of, of lighting and visualization and kind of like this feeling of like being in, in, in a room uh, and, uh, and the music. Um, we, had, we had been offered at that point um, the audio of, of Jamal's murder, which still has unbeen, been unreleased, but Turkey had, had offered it. Um, and they offered it cause they said, okay, this, this film will be the, you know, the, the be all end all of, of this story. 
And if there was, and if they were ever going to release the audio, it would be here and now. And so I had the transcript and I had Agnes Calamard who would listen to the audio in, in earphone. And I thought that it would just be gratuitous hmm. for an audience to have to listen to this man's horrendous murder and for those who loved him to have to listen to this for Hatija and Omar and his family and his friends and, you know, like, and, and it felt like it, it went to a place too far that the audience didn't need. So instead we took these words of what, of what happened, this, the actual transcript, which, you know, nobody had and, and brought it to life in the manner that you see uh, presented in the film, which I hope is, is incredibly effective and chilling without taking that extra step, which felt that it was going into, um, I don't know, like a snuff film or something. It just, it, it didn't need it. And there's so much shock in what was there already. And it also felt more powerful to see the words, you know, in English tra or translated on your screen of what really went on and kind of the, the, the barbarianism of, of, of his, of his murder. That, that's yeah. That's, uh, the completely fascinating um, the the thought process going into that as you are kind of weaving through this story, it does become like a pretty important theme of the role that tech plays in this, and especially I think scaring a lot of people about the amount of monitoring through this program called Pegasus. And I'm sure you're thinking, Brian, like there is probably a separate documentary on just that aspect of things. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that balancing process? Because th that's like a, a very different chilling part of the film, but chilling nonetheless about the level of monitoring that is going on through this program. Well, um, what, what, what you're talking about, John, is basically this, you know, Israeli cyber hacking software um, called Pegasus. There are other competitors to Pegasus. Um, there's probably three or four or five products on the market that are not available to consumers or basically available to governments that you know can afford this technology but it's being sold by private companies and in this case nsa out of israel um developed pegasus and when and they only sell to governments but uh they'll basically sell to any government <laughs> and because what's happening is uh israel is gaining insight into it's allies and enemies when they sell this software, because to have this kind of technology, they're controlling the back end of it. So when they license it, right, it's just like, okay, you buy a license from Adobe, right? Well, Adobe can turn off your monthly subscription. They know when you're using the Adobe product, they know, right. Or you're buying your Microsoft office or how all these programs are working now, right. That are basically a, a license. Um, that, you know, hey, you don't pay your Spotify, they shut it off. But also Spotify knows exactly what you're listening to, right? Well, the same thing is happening in the case of Pegasus, except this is being sold to governments. So the, the, the scary part about this is that, okay, so the government of Israel 
who has to authorize the sale is gaining intelligence into who Saudi Arabia wants to hack or who the United States wants to hack or who anybody who they're selling this software to is hacking and wants to hack, which is an incredible, you know, uh, uh, intelligence tool. On the other hand, this, these tools are being used in many cases for nefarious purposes. And what you see in the film is that, you know, the, the weaponry behind Pegasus, which is, you know, it, it creates an open box to your phone that anything and everything that's running on your phone, regardless of how secure you might think it is, once they get in, they have full access to your phone. Like it's, like it's in the palm of their hands. And, you know, and that, and that, and, and, uh, in the wrong hands, um, can be very dangerous. And there's been, you know, uh, multiple, multiple murders tied to the use of Pegasus in other countries. Um, you know, other governments that have, you know, went after dissidents or went after, uh, you know, uh, rebel groups or went after, uh, journalists, you, you name it. Um, and there is really no, um, you know, as I see it, way to kind of stop this. Because if you, if you have money to obtain this or your government that wants to obtain this, there are uh, companies um, that will sell this technology to you. You know, the, the revelation that um, Omar's phone was hacked and him believing that is, you know, one of the reasons at least that led to uh, Jamal's killing was, you know, one of the big revelations of this film. I'm curious to know what the reaction from the world has been towards um, that bit of information. And also um, Hatisha, you know, maybe learning about something like that. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I guess when you when you think of or you say the world in, in a broad context or, you know, information, I think I think what we constantly see and um, and this goes way beyond this is that despite what what you think should be done or what is the right thing to do or whatever you know really uh, in 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 reality doesn't happen so okay so Omar's phone had been hacked he knows it's been hacked um, now the Canadian government has been protecting Omar um, and they've done a, a good job I mean we're a couple of years on and Omar is alive. He's continuing his work. Uh, he's being monitored. He's living under, you know, um, kind of limited uh, mobility, but um, you know, Canada granted him asylum. Um, and so, you know, those things, you know, I, I think happened or largely were expedited as, as a result of, you know, not only this hack, but the threat assessment that was going on in terms of punishment or in terms of, you know, like has NSO, the company that sold Pegasus, they're being sued, but, you know, is anything ever really going to happen from that? It's unlikely. Are they going to be able to stop selling licenses? It's unlikely. Is there going to be, you know, all sorts of government regulations on this sort of technology? It's, it's unlikely um, because, because it's just too hard uh, to monitor. And this is, and this is the same thing that you're seeing across all these social media platforms. Like if you're, if you're looking like at the film and you go, okay, wait, so 
they hacked into Twitter. And that's, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there's a lawsuit, you know, these Saudi agents were, were, you know, had figured out were working for Twitter and basically hacking people's accounts on Twitter. But you go, okay, well, can that happen again? Of course. Or if you look at like how Twitter works, which is like the bees and flies, which is the same thing that makes Twitter a, a, a vehicle for freedom of speech, meaning, okay, you can be in, uh, in Burma and you can create a Twitter account using a VPN uh, under any name you want, under any, right? And you can create a hundred of those accounts. Well, that same power for free speech, right, is also the same power that creates proliferation of false information or creates QAnon or conspiracy theories or, and so it's this double-edged sword. And that's what you see in the film with the bees and the flies, because ultimately Omar's bees were functioning the same way that the Saudi flies were functioning, which was creating lots of fake Twitter accounts, except in Omar's case, they're creating the accounts to send out good messaging and let the people, you know, know that what's going on to them. And in the Saudi's account, they're creating all the fake Twitter accounts to basically, you know, send out propaganda and pro-government and pro-MBS messaging or, or, you know, messaging to conceal the murder of Jamal, uh, et cetera. And, and, and so, you know, when you say this is, you know, what, what happened, I mean, I think this is the, the bigger, you know, conversations of, of how does this function and how does this regulation function? And uh, the more things are regulated, they less, they become free. I mean, you know, cryptocurrency is facing this same kind of zeitgeist moment right now. This, wait, this is really great. And then, okay, the government's going to regulate it. And then what is it, you know, what now, now it's lost what has made it, you know, great. And I think this is this constant kind of, struggle that we're in in this age of, of technology um, in, a, in a global landscape where everything is truly global at this point. I know that when uh, the documentary was released, uh, you know, you've obviously done a lot of press and one of the big topics has been uh, the struggle to find distribution for, for this particular project. And that's, I think that's concerning to a lot of people on just the, the front of the side of how much that is going to limit aspiring filmmakers of even wanting to tackle such a topic. If the belief is that at best, this is going to be a passion project. Like, can you tell us a little bit about just, is it almost impossible for a documentary to be successful if you don't have one of the streaming giants behind it in a big way? Like, is there a roadmap to success and has it evolved at all in these last couple of months for you and getting the dissident out to people? Well, look, you know, it's, um, it's available. I mean, you can go on Apple. Uh, I realized they just uh, did a promotion right now. It's 99 cents uh, on uh, Apple, Amazon, you know, meaning it's, it's available for rent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not on the streaming platforms, meaning it's not part of your Netflix subscription. It's not part of your Amazon Prime subscription. It's not on your Hulu or your HBO or your Paramount Plus or your Disney or, you know, which is how people digest content these days. The vast majority of people are not going looking to rent a film because the mindset is that any film they need to see or any show they need to see 
will be on their Netflix, their HBO, their Amazon, their Hulu, right? And uh, and so not having that, and certainly not having, let's say the 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 power of a Netflix, which you know, with Icarus, you know, it's incredible because the day that Netflix launched Icarus, it was in 190 countries simultaneously at the same time, translated across whatever it is, 50 some odd languages. And the world had access to that film. And, and it had a huge impact because when Icarus came out, Russia was not banned from the Olympics. Uh, five months later, they were. And that was the impact, this global impact of the film. And to this day, three years on, um, I, I find it hard to find anyone anywhere I go in the world that hasn't seen that film. Or if they haven't seen it, they've heard of it and then they see it. And, you know, I mean, so, you know, uh, that that is the ex- incredible power of a platform uh, like a Netflix um, or an Amazon, uh, but, you know, really Netflix and, you know, of of releasing and distributing content on a global level. So, you know, very, very disappointing uh, that a film like this, that I believe that, um, you know, planet earth, you know, (laughs) would like to see uh, and that people would see in much, much bigger numbers if they didn't have to search for it to rent it. And it's also still, the dissonant is also still not available in tons and tons of countries all over the world um, because the way it was now distributed was, you know, distributor by distributor, country by country and available for rent. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that we are in a, an environment now um, with the globalization of, uh, of, of these companies um, that it is becoming harder and harder to have content like this, um, you know, reach a, um, you know, a, a, a global marketplace um, <clears throat> because of considerations. And I can understand it on their side too. The considerations, what used to be of, okay, we're releasing a film in the United States or this and that is now about, okay, if we release this film globally, will we create enemies in Egypt? Will they maybe try to hack our platform? Uh, will they launch a Twitter war against us? Uh, will that thwart our growth in the United Arab Emirates? Um, will that hurt? Uh, will that upset, you know, what percentage of our subscribers in the Middle East? Will it create, you know, I mean, and so all of these considerations are now coming into content distribution that I don't think were there uh, a a few years ago. And I think it is becoming increasingly difficult um, to have films that speak truth to power or, you know, to make a film like this and believe that if the film is extraordinary, the film's incredible, or the film is applauded or accoladed, that it's going to find global distribution. Um, Those that is not, you know, the recipe anymore, where I think in the past, if you created something that, you know, you knew people wanted to see and was really, really well put together, et cetera, um, that there would be a path for that. And um, I don't see that path anymore. 
It's rather unfortunate because, I mean, I feel like, you know, with the digital age, so much of it feels like it's a freeing of some of those shackles that like, you know, traditional models of distribution may have created. But it seems like there's a, a bit of a sort of full circle to back to, you know, taking us back to some of those limitations. Um, you know, obviously, I, I, you know, I'm sure you would love it if uh, this film would be able to receive some of the same accolades as, um, uh, you know, your, your prior film, Icarus. And um, I have to imagine, um, you know, if if it did receive some of the, the same acclaim um, when it comes time for award season, more people. Well, no, the award it. season, award season's over. Oh, um, OK. Really? The film uh, was not, uh, you know, the the Academy. It was not recognized by the Academy, but, you know, <clears throat> I it, again, it didn't have the. <laughs> the platform and the, you know, the, the push behind it, which, which, you know, um, which makes it hard. Um, It was nominated for the British Academy Award, which was great, a BAFTA um, and the film won, or, you know, myself and Mark Monroe won uh, the Writers Guild Award for best documentary screenplay, won a bunch of other stuff. Um, But um, it, it, uh, despite the reviews um and uh i think i think the the lack of a global uh distributor uh certainly um you know hurt the film uh uh for you know the the major major awards but you know nominated for british academy award was wonderful and uh and winning the wga award was wonderful you know entering Topics such as this, or you know, the topics that you you have uh, in Icarus. I mean, I imagine you're entering these projects with an intense amount of fearlessness. Um, but you know, as a result, uh, have you taken steps to protect yourself in the ensuing months? Um, you know, I, I'm always uh, I'm I'm always asked that, and you know, I I, I do the best I can. Uh, on on the other hand. Um, I, I don't, um, really go into that, that mindset. I, I, I stay focused more on the work. Um, uh, one of my favorite docs, Free Solo, there's that scene with Alex Hunold, the, you know, guy climbed El Capitan without ropes and he goes, well, I went into a lab and they tested my brain and they said there's something off in my amygdala, basically what's going on in my brain of fear, I don't know if I have something off with me. I just, um, I just think that I, I, I stay focused on the larger story and I go, wow, the Omar is struggling. Hatija is struggling. There's so many tens of thousands of people in the world, millions, hundreds of millions of people in the world that don't have the freedom that I have um, to even embark on something like this or don't live in countries or don't live under governments um, that they could even fathom doing work like this. And so I, I view it from more of a place of, of being grateful um, that not only am I given the ability to do this, that, um, that uh, I'm free to do this work uh, rather than try to think about um, fear, because I think fear um, doesn't really serve any purposes and, and, um, if I was operating from that premise, I, I, I don't think I would uh, be embarking on the work I did in Icarus or, or, in, uh, or, or in the dissonant for, for that matter. 
we'll end it with this, Brian, and uh, thank you very much for all of this time. And I'll apologize if this is uh, maybe too philosophical on my behalf, but it when you look at the end story and the legacy of Jamal and this story and those that have not been accountable at the top end, I mean, is there a parallel here of that in the, the story of the life of Jamal Khashoggi, that he is the Icarus figure that flew too close to the sun? And that's a pretty sobering statement to make. But at the end of it, like that is the conclusion that I think some will come to in all of this, that this there is not going to be the proper amount of justice, even in a case, as we mentioned, had these extraordinary allegations and extraordinary proof. Look, there is 100 uh, percent. Never. Uh, I, I just don't see it um, going to be justice uh, in in regards to this murder. I mean, MBS is not going to be arrested. There isn't going to be an Interpol uh, arrest warrant. They aren't going to pick up the kill team. Uh, these these guys in Saudi Arabia are going to get away with it. And they have gotten away with it for over two years now. I mean, the, the money, uh, the influence, the investment, all that stuff is going to allow that. On the other hand, um, I think his murder opened up the world's eyes to what is going on uh, in that country, uh, opened up the world's eyes to the repression against freedom of speech and freedom of press and freedom of journalism and the struggle that is going on there despite the, you know, the glossy, you know, uh, projection of that government of, hey, look how great it is in Saudi Arabia and come here and be a tourist and come and, you know, uh, and invest in our country. And I think that that Jamal's murder will forever be a stain uh, on Mohammed bin Salman's legacy. And I think that, you know, uh, people who do business with him will always know in the back of the head uh, who they are doing business with. And, you know, but in, in terms of punishment, um, I don't think there really ever will be meaningful punishment, but, you know, you can look at the same thing in Putin's Russia. Ultimately, if you got that kind of money, right. Or those kind of business interests or nuclear weapons, right. You know, meaningful uh, punishment becomes very difficult. Now, if this had been the government of Rwanda that had done this crime, you know, I think you would have seen very different actions because the financial stake and the business stakes uh, would have allowed the UN to sanction them, would have allowed the United States. It becomes, you know, it became different. But here, even in Biden and releasing the U.S. intelligence findings into the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which says that Mohammed bin Salman ordered the murder. He released the findings and then said, yes, and we're not going to do anything about it. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the sad reality of a world that we're living in. And I think a reminder to all of us that, um, that these things can happen. They do happen. They'll continue to happen. Um, and, uh, um, and I think just our internet day and age surveillance, what's going on is just making us more as a planet aware of these uh, sorts of crimes. Whereas I think before so many of these were able to be pushed under the, pushed under the rug. 
The film is The Dissident. Uh, you can find this uh, at places that uh, Brian has mentioned. It is out there. Uh, thedissident.com is where you can find uh, additional information. And it's a very important documentary that I would recommend people that are um, even casually familiar with the story. Uh, this will provide you with an extensive look at the entire case. And uh, congratulations on the documentary, Brian. I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, to chat about uh, the documentary and uh, re really some fantastic insight into the whole process behind it. My pleasure, guys. Be well, and thanks for having me on.